I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Shannon Kelman, Policy Director at the Friends of the Global Fight Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, and former Assistant Director of Washington External Affairs at the Council on Foreign Relations. Shannon, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Shannon, how did you first become interested in public health issues? I don't think of myself as a public health person. I think of myself usually far more as a generalist. I worked for a number of years on the Hill for a couple of members of Congress, and then, as Grant mentioned, went over to the Council on Foreign Relations. And while I was working there, came to know my now boss, who reached out to me about the position. And it happened to coincide with a rather tragic event in my family's life, actually, which is the death of my sister's best friend. She died in a a tragic accident, drowned off the coast of Bali, and she had worked in public health and had been a champion of these issues for certainly as long as I knew her, but for the majority of her adult life. And it just so happened that I heard about this job at the same time that this happened, and I thought that would be a way that certainly helped my career in achieving some manner of expertise around a subject area, but also as a way to to honor her as much as I could and continue the work that she left behind. That has really spurred an interest in it and has sort of continued. I've been at this job now three years and it has been an adventure and we can go through the points of advocacy that have been key to my work, but certainly no one was expecting the pandemic and that has raised the profile of global health issues. I think probably at the end of the day is as an opportunity for all of us to be aware of what it is that we're living through and, and the threats that are out there, but as a way that we can, you know, in the president's words, build back better and build stronger systems going forward. So let's just start there. Where are we on the fight against COVID internationally? I wish I had better news for you. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we are still very much in the thick of the pandemic. The key to global health writ large is that diseases do not respect borders, right? We're living through evidence of that. And Until we tackle COVID everywhere, we will not be safe anywhere. Ultimately, what that means for us right now is that the way to end the pandemic for those of us in the States and and in high-income countries means that we need to be focusing much more on the state of the pandemic in low- and middle-income countries. And right now, that is not great. Vaccines are very, very hard to come by. We're talking, you know, low percentages across low and middle income countries being able to access vaccines where we're talking about booster shots here in the United States and, and, you know, high income countries in Europe are looking at 70, 80, 90% vaccination rates. And so there's a very, very high disparity between those in low and middle income countries and, and those in the U.S. just in terms of access to vaccines. Now, on top of that, there are ways to mitigate the impacts of something like the COVID-19 pandemic without vaccines. And there are these public health measures that we should be implementing. A lot of that comes down to diagnostics and therapeutics. Ultimately, we don't know the full scale of the COVID-19 pandemic in low and middle income countries because we just do not have the testing and we do not have the information that would come from that that would lead us to understand better 
what the state of the pandemic is. But we know it's not good. We know that COVID is spreading. We know that Delta, being a highly contagious variant, is having a dramatic impact on low and middle income countries, in particular, treatment options like medical oxygen, like some of the therapeutics that are out there. Now, that's all the pessimistic stuff up front. There is room for optimism, right? We do have a couple of new therapeutics that have just come online, one of which that I think it poses a lot of excitement. There are ways to mitigate the effects of severe COVID for those who get it. The big caveat to that is the, so the, di- the excuse me, the therapeutic that I'm talking about, Molconavir, it needs to be administered within about four days of symptoms onset, which means it needs to be part of a test and treat protocol. We have test and treat protocols. We use them for HIV and other infectious diseases. But to do that is, you know, the first word is really the critical part. We need the test. And so it needs to be someone comes into a clinic, they've got a cough, they've got a fever, they're presenting symptoms, they get tested for COVID, probably should be any patient regardless of symptoms. And if they come back positive, they immediately go on treatment. That requires scaling up both testing and access to that treatment in a capacity that we just we don't have yet. And so what you're looking at is, okay, we need more vaccines, we need more sharing of doses, we need more countries sort of swapping places in line for the purchase of doses. We saw that earlier this week with big purchase from the African Union of the Moderna vaccine. The U.S. swapped essentially places in line with the AU to allow for that. We need scaling up of diagnostics and therapeutics and medical oxygen. And last and certainly not least, PPE. Medical workers in particular, but honestly, just everyone needs better access to PPE, and that will help reduce transmission while we're sort of in this holding pattern until vaccines can get out to low and middle income countries. Is this a production problem? There's not enough supply of tests or vaccines or PPE, or is it honestly an infrastructure problem? Honestly, it's sort of neither. Medical oxygen, there have been supply chain issues for sure. But by and large, it's that wealthy countries are hoarding. They're buying up all access to to tests, um, certainly to the easy at-home tests, which would be particularly useful in low- and middle-income countries in rural areas where we're not getting out testing that we need to get out. Low- and middle-income countries are just not able to compete on that scale of purchasing power. Um, And so they can access some of this through donation, either direct bilateral donation from high-income countries to low and middle income countries, or through the broader global health infrastructure and multilateral network, the biggest organization that is leading this charge, sort of the non-vaccine components of COVID response, is the organization that I work closely with, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. They have stood up what they are calling the COVID-19 response mechanism that has been doing all of this work and leading this charge um, within the ACT Accelerator, which is the Access to COVID Tools Accelerator. Uh, and the multilateral response to COVID. And the Global Fund is playing this role on diagnostic therapeutics and what they're calling the health system connector, which is shoring up health systems, making sure that healthcare workers have what they need, PPE, ensuring access to ICU beds, all of these sort of individual aspects of, of a health system to make sure that no country is on the verge of collapse in response to COVID. I'm curious what you think about vaccine diplomacy strategies more generally, but specifically the ways in which China and Russia have used vaccine diplomacy as a tactic. What are your thoughts there? 
Yeah. So I actually wrote a little bit about this earlier this spring. I would say the the end sort of log line of this is that China and Russia are pursuing vaccine diplomacy the way they pursue most of their diplomacy. And so you can draw through lines for how their interactions with other countries are going, and, and that is how they are approaching vaccine diplomacy. So China first, and I am not a China expert by any stretch of the imagination. Their attitude towards vaccine diplomacy is problematic from a public health standpoint. The U.S. has been the leader in donation, that is donation of both funding and vaccine doses. The Chinese government has pursued a strategy of retail. They are selling their vaccine doses, which puts an even greater strain on the resources of low and middle income countries to access those doses. And so it creates much more of this quid pro quo environment around the Chinese vaccine. Russia, similarly problematic, but for different reasons. The Russian vaccine is also of dubious efficacy. I think a lot of the testing around the Russian vaccine has been concerning. It is the vaccine that is not yet approved by the WHO for use in combating COVID-19. And they are pursuing a strategy primarily with nations in Eastern Europe that are already sort of within their sphere of influence that comes down to a high pressure campaign to ensure that they take the, the Sputnik vaccine, that is the Russian vaccine, over access to the vaccines produced by Western nations. And so it's become a side proxy war or debate uh, just as much as any other diplomacy issue would be. It has the contours of a lot of that great power competition. Yeah, there's something even about the phrase vaccine diplomacy that feels kind of queasy, like we shouldn't be playing with public health as a sort of bartering mechanism or, or, or sort of tool in great power politics. You know, I, I'm curious to hear what you think about the Biden administration's response so far, and also how they're thinking about fighting pandemics going forward. Yeah, I think on the first part of your question on the Biden administration's response so far, look, I will be the first person to say I want the administration to do more because I want everyone to be doing more because we can we can and will be able to end this pandemic. It's just a matter of devoting the resources and time and energy and, and all of those things to it. That being said, Biden administration really has been in the lead on COVID response. As I said before, the U.S. is the lead nation in donating both funds and doses for vaccines, uh, has been in the lead contributor to the Global Fund's COVID-19 response mechanism far and away compared to other G7 or G20 donors. So they have done a lot. I think there needs to be a lot more going forward. I think everyone in the global health advocacy community is a little concerned because we are going to be reaching a point likely at the end of this year, the beginning of next year, where USAID is out of money to respond to COVID-19 globally. So there needs to be some supplemental, there needs to be something going forward to help address those disparities because the pandemic will not be done in December. That I can guarantee, despite the fact that funding might be. Going forward, talking about pandemic preparedness and response, there's a lot of debate going on right now. The Biden administration convened the Global COVID-19 Summit on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly just this past September, ideally a meeting that would have happened a year ago, but better late than never. And that meeting had three priorities, talking about vaccinations, talking about Save Lives Now, which is the formulation they have for getting out testing and diagnostics and all of the global health and, and public health measures you can take 
in advance of vaccine availability. And then what they call build back better, but the components going forward into the future. They have proposed, as have many in on the Hill and in the global health community, a new financing mechanism to address pandemic preparedness and response. Pandemic preparedness and response is essentially a watchword of sorts for roughly 20 things you can do in the public health space. Ways you can shore up health systems, address laboratory capacity, community health workers, surveillance, all of these individual aspects that build up to making sure that you have a system that is able to respond to a future pandemic or the one we are living through right now. A new financing mechanism is a great idea. We need more money in global health. Global health has long been facing an investment gap that we are just not living up to the, the potential. COVID-19 is likely to have at minimum an impact on the world economy somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to $16 trillion. Investing $10 to $15 billion feels like a drop in the bucket compared to that response to make sure that we're not living through the economic consequences of yet another pandemic and ensuring that we end this one as soon as we can. A new financing mechanism could take a number of different forms. It could be built in within the, the bilateral aid programs. It could be an outcropping of existing multilateral programs, including the work that the Global Fund does already on health systems and health security. Or there has been this idea around a financing mechanism hosted at the World Bank, which would likely be a fund that would be contributed into by other donors. Ultimately, I come down on more money is always good, especially if it's not being siphoned away from other health programs into this financing mechanism for for pandemic preparedness and response. Sounds great. I really hope it comes to pass. I really do. I do not see the support for this measure coming from other governments. So I'm concerned about that. And I think it is a big task for the Biden administration to ensure that other governments get on board and they're willing to pony up the money, they're willing to pony up the political support, and the Biden administration ponies up the diplomacy to help get us there. I think that would be the most effective path forward for the world. Now, we're not revisiting this scenario in just a few years' time. Let me propose a different funding mechanism and see what you think. Okay. Uh, Instead of doing what I think all three of us on this podcast would agree is probably the right path, which is diplomatic, foreign aid and development-based global health. Instead, why don't we militarize global health? Why don't we shove it in the DOD, have our intel community out there looking to spot bad strains or pandemic diseases coming early, You know, have a medical corps similar to the National Guard that we can deploy around the world or at home to deal with these issues. Because it seems to me that the State Department, USAID, and and even HHS, the CDC, et cetera, are always starved for funds. The DOD is always flush with money. Would it be better if we just militarized it? So don't let the DOD hear you say that. I don't think they would argue that they are flush with funds. So what you were proposing is an idea that has kicked around the global health community for some time. It is essentially shorthanded as the securitization of health. I tend to use the phrase pandemic preparedness and response 
over global health security. They are largely interchangeable for this exact reason. What you are proposing would have benefits, I'm certain, for high-income countries, and in particular, the U.S. What it doesn't take into account and what it would pose significant risks for is it doesn't take into account the needs and desires of those in low- and middle-income countries that these programs are ostensibly designed to serve. One of the benefits of an institution like the Global Fund is it has a, a unique board and governance structure that donor countries sit on the board, but implementing countries do as well, and affected populations and civil society and all of the disparate groups that have a stake in global health programming. And it allows for those countries to be able to say, look, this is what we need in my country. This is what we need to create a secure global health system. And this is what we're asking for the world to help support us on. A militarization, as you put it, of global health would in some ways be a a useful idea to secure more funding. And certainly on that, I am all for it. But I think we need to think about how to build in the voices of the populations we're talking about. One of the things that came out of last year's discussions, and I wish they were more current as well, but discussions around equity and racism and how we talk about issues in our country in the global health space, that took a very particular strain of talking about decolonizing global health. So that we're not talking about as a rich country, which the United States extremely is, dictating to the rest of the world, this is how you should run your global health program, but making sure that we are incorporating the voices of the global South into developing those programs, developing those institutions so that they are best able to serve the people in those areas. Do you think a more inclusive brand of global health will actually win out in terms of money and support? Long term, do you think that we'll be able to secure U.S. citizens against the next pandemic and protect the most vulnerable elsewhere in time with diplomacy? Because when I look at like COVAX, it like immediately fell apart when there were problems, right? Even if the U.S. is the most good-hearted and generous that we could possibly be, which we all know will not be the case. Can we actually see a inclusive, decolonized global health system work? It also seems like there's this complicated line that the global public health community wants to walk where there's reservations about kind of militarizing or securitizing public health issues. But at the same time, we want there to be a full recognition that pandemics and public health are part of national security and national security concerns, and they should be part of the National Security Council and, and so forth. So I think that's like a slightly different issue than the one that, that Grant is touching on, but sort of similar in that there's this tightrope that we're all trying to walk and making it a priority and, and also not pushing it too far into the, into the world of defense and security. Yeah, so global health absolutely is a security issue. My hesitation around the securitization of global health programming doesn't take away from that fact. Ultimately, yes, I do think we are able to do this. I very much position myself as a cautious optimist. Ultimately, what we are proposing, which is a more inclusive version of global health, also has the added benefit of being the best way to approach global health programming. 
and it will allow for the most effective results. Building on existing global health programs, you know, we tend to think of disease-specific programs and then system-wide programs. And building on those two components that already exist is one of the most effective ways forward, and we've seen this time and time again, to address future pandemics, to make sure that concerted response is going forward. I think this is actually one of these big issues that we talk about in foreign policy all the time, is that we need holistic responses. You know, one of the biggest things you can do to respond to, honestly, all global health issues, but in particular HIV AIDS, is ensure that adolescent girls and young women stay in school. They stay in school, they have better access to information about transmission of HIV, they have better access to support services. All of these things are key parts of our foreign policy agenda, or at least very well should be. And I, I would argue that under the Biden administration, they are. And so approaching global health as a pure security issue is not going to get us the results on infectious diseases that we want to see going forward. Now, for my friends in the COVAX space, COVAX is not flat. It is still very much around. It is still kicking. Are there problems with vaccine equity? Absolutely. Do we need to structurally rethink how low and middle income countries are able to access vaccines? Absolutely. That being said, COVAX has shipped more than 400 million doses to, I think, 92 low income countries and are on track to ship more than a billion doses by the end of the year. Surplus doses from the United States, from other high income countries are going out. Again, not at the speed they need to be. And yes, there is definitely this push and pull of high-income countries have been able to shore up supply for themselves at the expense of low- and middle-income countries. But COVAX is still kicking. Gavi is still working. Gavi is a great institution that is charged with vaccinating essentially all children worldwide against the wide variety of childhood diseases. They're doing as much as they can, I think, to tackle the COVID response and make sure that the vaccines get out. There is a lot of work to do. It is not a perfect system by any stretch of the imagination, but it is not a, a full-scale collapse, or, or rather the, the tale of their death has been greatly exaggerated. This is the, I would say, the third conversation we have had recently that has been a sort of semi-issue that's half in, half out of the national security space that are all vying for space. So climate, cyber, uh, I think our friend Paul Massaro would say corruption is something that we should be focused on, and global health. To me, it just seems like the table for national security is really, really expanding. How do you imagine that the next national security advisor understands and moves quickly enough on global health issues? Do you think it's, we need more people in the room? Do you think it's, we need smarter people? Do you think we need to have a whole different agency or different with how we think about global health? What are your prescriptions for making our national security response a better one? Yeah, I think there's a lot we could be doing. I'm not proposing a new agency. And I don't necessarily know that there needs to be smarter people in the room. I greatly respect the people who are currently in the room. I think what needs to change is the seniority with which these issues are handled. I would love to see a singular point person at the White House 
with the ear of the president and the ear of the chief of staff of the White House, who is able to speak to these issues and direct the U.S.'s global COVID response. Ultimately, the U.S. has been, as many, many, in fact, probably the entire world has been focused on their individual domestic response. Understandably so. They have to respond to constituents first. This is, you know, you sort of have to prioritize in, in some respects. That being said, I think we have to be able to walk and chew gum. We have seen this time and time again, especially COVID as a viral disease. It will mutate. We've seen this before. We've seen this with the Delta mutation. It will continue to mutate. Um, and what keeps me up at night is the eventual mutation of COVID-19 into a variant that is no longer responsive to the vaccine. Because then we're just back where we were in March, April, 2020, and we'll suffer certainly those consequences. The low and middle income countries will suffer those consequences on an exponential scale. So I think what I would like to see for global health going forward within the national security apparatus, I do agree it is a national security issue, but it is also a humanitarian one, and it needs to be approached with that lens. Interestingly, at the National Security Council, there are actually two positions that deal with global health. There is the director that deals with global health security and biosecurity, and there's a senior directorate for that. And then there is a directorate for global health and humanitarian affairs. They work very closely together. They're both staffed by very smart, very capable staffers. And so I, I would love to see that. I would love to see that continued and codified. If Congress wants to get involved, that'd be fantastic. I want to ensure that global health is being handled by the people who understand what the successes have been. Global health, as we understand it in terms of programming, is, a, is largely 20 years old. Started with the creation of the Global Fund and PEPFAR in 2002, 2003. We had certainly global health programming in advance of that with USAID global health programming. And certainly CDC has been around and has a global health program that is spectacular. But as we think about global health architecture within the United States, it is PEPFAR, it is PMI, it is the global funds that have taken these really outsized roles. And that's great. And we have a lot of lessons that we can learn from those responses that can be applied to future global health responses that I would like to see being part of the national security discussion. I'd love to shift gears and talk a little bit about malaria, which has obviously been a disease that has been endemic for a long time and in many ways, I think, has sometimes sort of fallen off the, the immediate sort of priority and attention of, of policy, policymakers. If we were to get some sort of big breakthrough on a malaria vaccine, what exactly would that mean? Can you put that into some context for us? And I can actually take it out of the hypothetical, which is we have had a very big breakthrough on a malaria vaccine. And it is very exciting, and there are lots of opportunities that come with it. The malaria vaccine that just was approved by the WHO is the first vaccine for malaria. As a side note, by the way, there is a vaccine for tuberculosis. It is a full century old and has limited usage potential, and there is no vaccine for HIV. Those are the, the three big infectious diseases pre COVID malaria, TB, and HIV. For the malaria vaccine, it presents a lot of opportunities, but it is in no way a silver bullet. 
the findings of the initial round of testing that have been sponsored by sort of the usual suspects in the global health space find that with the vaccine, they're seeing about a 70% decrease in severe malaria cases in children, the vaccine primarily in use for children, and reduced overall hospitalizations from severe malaria by 30%. The vaccine is a great additional tool, but it is not the end of malaria as we know it, and it will probably not overwhelmingly change the fight against malaria. But it is especially used in concert in concert with existing programs and and efforts to combat malaria, like bed nets, like seasonal usage of anti-malarials, like indoor spraying programs. We can see a, a dramatic reduction in caseload and in many ways see a dramatic reduction in severe caseload and, and death, which I think ultimately will get us a lot closer to malaria elimination. I do want to shout out my organization just released a report on the best ways to tackle malaria, looking at number of case studies in countries that have successfully addressed their malaria epidemics. And that is endingmalaria.org takes a look at a lot of the options that are out there for other countries to implement to address malaria going forward. And I, I strongly recommend others take a look at that to think about ways we can build on the successes we've already seen and address those challenges coming forward. In addition to vaccine breakthroughs, and that's amazing that there has been some big developments and progress there, what do you make of new genetic engineering methods to malaria mitigation, like using gene drive technology that, that, you know, sort of causes the populations of mosquitoes infected with malaria, you know, to diminish. Are we playing with fire here? Or is this, is this like a really promising avenue that we should be pursuing in an even bigger way? Probably famous last words, right? But I don't think we're playing with fire. I think the innovation that comes in global health, whether it be modification of mosquitoes like we're talking about that no longer carry the the parasite that causes malaria. I think there are a lot of opportunities out there. Fundamentally, there are four categories of disease, right? There's bacterial, there's viral, there's parasitic, and there's fungal. Creating therapies and vaccines for all four require a wide variety of tools, and we should be using every scientific tool set that we have available to us. I think the the scientific and innovation that we have on hand, we're seeing things like using like the malaria vaccine is actually a perfect example. The malaria vaccine is built off of mRNA technology, which is great. And also we are become much more fluent about because of the COVID vaccine. So that's a, a viral vaccine and then a parasitic vaccine. There are a lot of scientific developments out there, including new diagnostics, new therapies, I, as a non-science person, am continually astounded by and impressed by the innovation going on in the world. And I'm excited to see what the great minds of the scientific community can come up with. And I trust them entirely to make sure that we're not living in a a worst case scenario sci-fi situation. A weird through line for our last few episodes, I said we've talked about climate change, we've talked about cyber. It's really about the effectiveness of being able to communicate highly technical topics to lay people. And because your work primarily is talking to congressmen and women, 
How do you think about that challenge of communicating effectively to them and their staffers on global health issues? It's a very interesting question. I am not a science person. I'm not a health person. I have a slight science background. More than anything, I am a foreign policy person and I am an economics person and a political person for whatever that's worth. So ultimately, I think in communicating complicated topics and complicated ideas, I think it comes about storytelling, right? It is not about, like, I can rant about all of the numbers and I can tell you all of the statistics. The Global Fund has saved 44 million lives since its inception. And I can run through all of the statistics and tell you all about it. And numbers are persuasive, right? But the basics of global health come down to, do people have access to tests to make sure they are sick or, or what they are sick with, rather, and to ensure that we are treating them correctly? And do they have access to whatever they need to get better? And that is a gross oversimplification, right? But sometimes the simplification is what communicates the best. And we tell stories about global fund partners in implementing countries. I raised adolescent girls and young women earlier where, you know, we're able to tell the stories of some of these, of these women who are doing amazing things in their community. And that ends up being one of the most persuasive things we can do. And ultimately, my job is actually to bring those voices to policymakers and just get out of the way. Because I don't need to be telling anyone else's story for them. I just want to help make sure that I am connecting those people together. One of the the coolest things I got to witness, we did this advocacy day where we brought in one of our partners from Kenya. And she works very closely with my organization. I very much enjoy working with her. And I set up a meeting for her with a congresswoman who is very involved in the funding of foreign aid programs. And we met outside, this is well before COVID, and we met outside of the House of Representatives floor. We're literally standing in a hallway and the person from the Global South is talking and she's explaining her story. She is living with HIV as is one of her sons, but her younger son did not contract it because she was able to take medicine while she was pregnant with him that prevented the transfer. Great, this hugely moving story. And she tells it very well and far more eloquently than I do, given the bare bones of it. And in response, the congresswoman said bluntly, okay, what do you need? How much money? Give me a number. And it was incredibly impressive to watch. And my role in that was working with the congresswoman's office to make sure that we scheduled the meeting, right? Like I just need to get out of the way and let her do the talking and not try to tell her story for her. And ultimately, I think this is more, I think, where your question is going. There are complicated ideas out there. There's a lot of science. There's a lot of way to talk in jargon and statistics, and you lose your audience. And ultimately, if we are better communicators, we are able to understand where our audience is and meet them there. And that is going to be the most persuasive avenue to addressing some of these problems. Might not be the the end of the fix, but at least that's what I'm hoping will will help us carry forward. The flip side of the communications problem on this topic is that it seems to me like issues around public health and disease are especially prone to disinformation and fake news. I'm sort of wondering how we solve this ongoing challenge we've seen around disinformation in the current pandemic, but also going forward how do we ensure that people are really getting 
the right information they need, access to to sort of ground truth on decisions like whether or not to get vaccinated. What's your perspective been, you know, sort of watching information operations play out in this domain? So I'm by no means an expert on ways to to combat misinformation. I think the most effective tools I have seen are when the audience trusts where the information is coming from. I get a huge kick out of the fact that there are like magnets made of Dr. Fauci, like gives me no end of joy. But the, the flip side of that, I think it comes down to a big media question where we live in a environment a very divisive media where someone like Dr. Fauci, who has devoted his life to combating infectious diseases, is vilified in far-right media for no particularly good reason except for misinformation about the pandemic. I don't have a great answer to that question, but I think as long as we are presenting truth and we know it is truth and we present it as reliable and those in the consuming audience, whether they are consuming media or policymakers or whoever that may be, as long as they are able to access that information, I think that is going to be our best tactic. And I think it comes down to speaking simply, to not speaking in jargon, to not speaking down to people. There's been so much of that throughout this pandemic and throughout many, many issues in the, the past, I would say, five to seven years of politics where you get policymakers who are like, look, let me show you how smart I am and are speaking in a condescending manner. And I don't think that can persuade anyone ever. And so thinking about where you can can meet your audience and say, look, COVID-19, you don't have to believe that it's real, but at the end of the day, it's affecting your job, it's affecting your livelihood, and it's affecting your family. And you should be concerned about it from from that perspective alone. And if the best way to get back to any semblance of normal is to get this shot that we've told you is safe, that is safe, hopefully you, at the end of the day, agree with that and decide to get the shot. With that, let's move on to our final segment of the podcast where we each talk about something we've been following in the news culturally or politically. This week, I want to talk about Dune. So I'm not going to cover the debate about Orientalism or the fact that it's supposed to be a subversion of the white savior trope, but most people miss that. Instead, I just want to highlight the importance of fantasy and sci-fi to foreign policy and policy making generally. There's great stuff that I could direct you to, like 2034, a novel of the next world war, or Ghost Sleep. But there's also stuff that's a little more broad, like the three-body problem, or even Dune, that are worth thinking about. What's important about reading fantasy and sci-fi, and even just fiction generally for political people, is that it will help us understand what could be so we can change what is. So my endorsement this week is to go out and read something that is not the news that is not Twitter, go enjoy some TV, go see Dune and IMAX. Whatever you do, focus on what could be to help expand your idea about what's possible now. Zoe, what are you following this week? Here, here to the fiction and geopolitics. I'm a New Yorker, so I've been following the recent entrance of Tish James to the governor's race. She's the New York Attorney General, and she is seen as 
Governor Kathy Hochul's most significant challenger yet. And I will say, regardless of how the race develops, it is very exciting to see that the top two contenders so far in the primary are both women, given that Governor Hochul just recently became the first female governor. So let's just say that I feel like New York politics is trending in a good direction. Shannon, what are you following this week? So I'm going to talk about something that is also a little bit New York based as well, despite the fact that I am not a New Yorker by any stretch of the imagination. I have been increasingly over the past week, though, in some weeks prior, obsessed with the new musical Six. So this is a musical retelling of the Six Wives of Henry VIII and framed as a sort of who was wronged the most musical. The music is spectacular. I cannot wait to see it. I am beyond thrilled that Broadway is open again. And I am fully vaccinated, so I will be going at some point, hopefully soon. And I generally love stories that take a well-known story and flip it to look at it from a different character's perspective. I think this is a particularly useful exercise when we're talking about historical characters. Do I love it because they talk about the Reformation while referencing a Beyonce lyric? Probably. Do I care? Not really. It is spectacular. Everyone check out the the cast album. I cannot recommend it too highly. I hope everyone gets some enjoyment out of it. As an Episcopalian, I really hope that the music is much better than what Henry VIII left us with. Um, But with that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and Shannon at Shan Kelman. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's podcast is brought to you by the single mosquito that is still surviving into the fall in my apartment. Damn you, climate change. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. Thank you.